0: Welcome to I Want to Put a Baby in You, a podcast exploring reproductive technology and life changing stories. Here are your hosts, Jennifer White
1: and Ellen Trackman. Welcome to I Want to Put a Baby in You. I'm Ellen Trackman here with Jennifer White. Hi, Yay, Jen. Hi, I'm here. So today's episode is very, I feel like it's intellectual and international, yes. really exploring different viewpoints, especially. Um, particularly with regards to surrogacy. But before we talk to our esteemed guest, uh, have you been to to Europe, to the Hague? Uh, I have definitely been to Europe.
2: I lived in mm-hmm. Germany for four years.
1: <laughs> so, as well as England. As well uh, as- I also lived
2: in England for another almost four years. So yes. Um, <laughs> and we did do a, a lot of traveling. I did not go specifically to the Hague, but I have been to Brussels and actually when we first moved there we just went up randomly one weekend and I guess one weekend every other year they do something called the flower carpet and that major plaza in the middle of Brussels they um, make a design and they like coat it with flowers in the shape of design It's supposed to look basically like a big oriental rug across the entire thing with flowers and so we just happened upon apparently a major festival it was insane and so beautiful and such an incredible introduction to Europe that we were just like, I mean, we were already charmed anyway, but it just made it all the
1: better. (laughs) So what about you? Have you, have you been to Europe? Uh, Yes. Uh, And to Brussels. And I went a different time. I went during the holiday season and um, it was kind of by, by luck that I went. So I was studying abroad in Ireland and I met a friend who was from Brussels and she was returning home. But she, she was taking Ryan Air, and apparently it would cost more to pay for an additional piece of luggage than to fly someone else with her with their own piece of luggage. So <laughs> she offered for me to fly with her home to get her luggage there, and I was like happy to do so. <laughs> um, and then had a great trip getting to to see Brussels during the holiday season. So it was really fun. That is awesome. Yeah, <laughs> I love
2: it. Um, we didn't ask Steve if he's ever been to The Hague, so we don't oh, know. I feel, I feel pretty strongly he probably has. He, I'm, he likely has, but, you know, I it, put it, money does on not, it. it does not stop the fact that it was quite an incredible intellectual discussion.
1: So everybody, here you go. Welcome, Steve Snyder, to the podcast. And it's really welcome back, Steve, since you've the right. second time to be honored by your presence on the podcast. How are you today, Steve?
0: I am absolutely fabulous.
1: Excellent. Well, in case someone hasn't listened to the previous podcast, stop, go back. But if you don't want to go back right now, Steve, do you mind giving a brief introduction of who you are? If it's even possible someone doesn't know who you are, but let's say (laughs) an alien comes from another planet. Tell them a little bit about yourself.
0: Well, I am an attorney that uh, got licensed before surrogacy was a thing and then accidentally fell into surrogacy through a family law law referral from a colleague here in Minnesota. Got connected to Noel Keene's agency by being their local counsel here and got to know him very well. For those of you who don't know Noel Keene, Uh, He was the establisher of the first surrogacy agency ever in the United States, and he ran it for many years before he died. That was the agency that did the BBM case. And uh, when Noel died, uh, the agency eventually evolved to me. So I've been doing surrogacy law for 30 years, and I'm currently managing and directing an agency that's been around since 1982. So I have a lot of experiential witnessing and involvement through my tenure as the American Bar Association Assisted Reproductive Technology Chair for seven years. So I've created a lot of legislation and particularly regarding this topic, uh, I was happy to be appointed the ABA liaison to the international social services group that drafted these Verona principles. And I attended a number of their meetings, arm wrestled <laughs> with them,
1: I believe obviously
0: it. unsuccessfully, about uh, how they should uh, look at surrogacy, but these are the final Provisions and principles that they've issued, and they don't necessarily have my stamp of approval, but they do have some fingerprints on them. And I was going to say, and that's
2: the part we haven't even introduced what we wanted to talk to you about. I mean, that's why I reached out and had you come back because these came out in, I believe, late February. And I mean, obviously, by the time this comes out, it's going to be May. But I was absolutely kind of dumbfounded when I saw them. And by some parts, there are some great pieces to this, and there are some. Very fascinating pieces about
1: that. <laughs> before we go into the content, Steve, do you mind telling us a little bit about what the ISS is and how their process works?
0: Well, it's International Social Services. So it's an international organizational group that brings together people from around the world that work primarily in social services. And the people that were attracted to and invested in this process, many of them came from child protective services. So they came from backgrounds where they see on a daily basis horrific circumstances and events involving children. So they had a bias right away that this is from the children's perspectives and obviously surrogacy is a threat to children. And that was their Belief system going in, and it is much of the I, belief system that. It's very
2: evident it. when you read it,
1: yeah. And what do these principles mean? Is anyone held to them? How are they used?
0: How are the excuse, what? How are what? The, used? the
1: Verona, Verona principles. principles. This this report. This says principles.
0: Um, this report is to influence those larger bodies that may actually have the capacity to create and impose global regulation and specifically it's the hague conference so the hague conference right now is an international body that has representatives from all the states, and in the terminology, they're using states equals countries, all of the states around the world, and they get together and try to create international global agreements where legal issues transcend national boundaries. The example is the Hague Convention on Adoption. And when one country sends a child to another country, the countries have to cooperate, so there's an international compact and the people that sign on agree to certain agencies and certain regulations. And The Hague is looking at surrogacy as one aspect of the best interests of the children and establishing parentage and children's human rights around the world. So since The Hague is considering an international compact that touches upon surrogacy, the ISS said this is a great opportunity for our us to put our voice out there and hopefully influence them to adopt our principles. One of the weighty benefits that the ISS principles have is that uh, the identified raconteur or um, united nations appointed person to look into children and children's rights and human rights and trafficking is part of their group that did initially create these and she's left her um position now but if you look in there it's Maud de boer and she was very adamant that surrogacy was the sale and sexual exploitation of children, so she brought this in under her auspices and gave it a lot of credibility.
2: Yeah, I, I, that's some of what is fascinating to me is that it, it is pretty unequivocal in that they, they feel really, I can see where your fingerprints might at least try to pull them back from that edge. But it does seem like their opinion is that this is the sale of children um that that's a pretty solid standpoint of where they're trying to move towards in this um before we get to that specific one, I'd be happy to talk about the just kind of set you up <laughs> on some of them because a few of these are you know i I reread it again before we talked today I've read it a couple of times there's eighteen principles spelled out in here, and you know a lot of them are things that people just it's hard to argue with you know that humans have inherent dignity is one of them and that children have independent rights and children have the right to not be discriminated against depending you know on the circumstances of their birth and that they have the right to health those sound good and and that's why there's some of these that are fantastic principles it's that there are some things that we start to dig into the surrogacy parts (laughs) and um i i started to highlight and i have to admit that i had to give up highlighting because i was highlighting the entire document <laughs> at one point um there are definitely things in here steve that i'd love to talk to you about that especially with how it applies to us in the united states is that the over and over again it addressed the fact that the surrogate and i mean one we could take issue with language because they call her surrogate mother throughout and she's not the mother but we can. We can parse that language separately, however we want. Um, but that the surrogate has the right to withdraw consent. And that's in there over and over and over again. And that only if she personally consents to the parents having the child after birth do they consider this a valid agreement. And what do you tell tell me your thoughts on that?
0: Well, you first of all have to orient yourself as between the United States and pretty much the rest of the world and how they look at parentage. For centuries, Europe and other developed countries and most other countries around the world have gone on the principle that she who gives birth determines who the mother is. In their legal system, it is deeply entrenched and not subject to exception that the woman who gives birth is the mother of the child and it's a legal principle rooted in the way pregnancy always happened for centuries. And it has not been updated. It has not had been supplanted. So in the legal systems of the other countries that had input into this, when you give birth to a child, you're the mother, period. Can't change it. And in the United States, we don't adhere to that. We have subsequently reformed our laws through the Uniform Law Commission, the Uniform Parentage Act, and numerous other laws that say, here's how you determine parentage. Um, If you give birth, you have a presumption. Uh, If you're married to her, you have a presumption. Uh, If you're the genetic father and you're not married to her, uh uh-oh, but you have a genetic (laughs) presumption. And In most of those cases also they say now in a gender neutral way. And if you can provide genetic proof of uh, relationship as a mother, you also have a presumption. So children are born with multiple parents in these situations, the surrogate, her husband, the sperm donor father, the egg donor, mother or other egg donor. And we look at parentage as fluid And we have a system in which making a genetic mother who's an intended mother but didn't give birth makes legal sense and comports with our structure. That is not the case in 90% of the globe. So they have an initial conundrum that if they are going to legally see the surrogate as the mother, and they do, and she's going to give birth and hand her baby over for a fee, and she does,
1: She's selling her baby, and note that they talk about the different perspectives. That in some countries they believe that compensation can't be untied from this process of being a gestational carrier and the baby's the rights of the baby being transferred from her to the intended parents. Um, and but other countries view it as separately. I, I assume that your voice was in there. Can you, can you share your thoughts on, on that idea of compensation and whether it is a transfer of the child, um, which obviously, again, we don't view it that way here.
0: Well, m- my fingerprints are in there because I said, no, it's not payment for a baby, it's payment for her gestational services. And you will see.
2: See those words exactly were in, in there.
0: <laughs> yeah, in some countries they look at it yes. as payment for services, not <laughs> payment for a child. And I go yes, <laughs> and then they go.
2: However, <laughs>
0: yeah, if the payment for those services is revocable, if it's contingent on the surrogate delivering the child at the end of the services in other words if you draft a contract and say you provide services and at the end of the day if you provided your services but don't hand over the child we can recover that from you then it's not for services anymore it's for transfer of the child and then it brings it under the transfer provisions for remuneration so Their theory is, yes, it can be payment for services, which means it's not payment in exchange for a child, so it doesn't violate these rules, but you can't make it contingent on the surrogate delivering the baby. She has to be able to be paid upon completion of her services before the court proceeding for parentage, and it's got to be irrevocable. And, eh, yes, that's... Counter to our perspective. But if you look carefully at the way this is drafted, when it says there has to be a a post birth court proceeding that establishes parentage under the best interests of the child, if the surrogate doesn't consent. So it's not the ability of the surrogate to revoke the transfer. If she doesn't consent, their system gives it to a court to then analyze the best interests of the children as between the surrogate and the intended parents. Now, in my view, in the United States, the way we do surrogacy, A, that's not going to happen. And in the rare case where it does, in almost all the cases where it has, the intended parents have prevailed under a best interest standard. So they create a system that's at odds with, quote, compensated surrogacy, pre-existing contracts with obligation to transfer the child, revocation of remuneration if you breach the contract. They don't like that. But they've also set up a system where you can do it. You have a risk because how many surrogacies do we do a year, Ellen? And. How many surrogates wouldn't sign a consent afterwards? I mean, I work in Minnesota, and every donor case requires an adoption uh so that we can establish the non-genetic mothers or non-genetic fathers' rights. And the surrogates always consent. It it's it's part and parcel of the process. I've done a thousand of them and never had a revocation.
1: I'm always fascinated by um Andy Vorzimmer had these numbers a few years ago that of 144,000 surrogacies, it was like 13 times that a gestational carrier had changed her mind, like an incredibly small percentage, but like 80 times intended parents had had issues with possibly changing their minds. So when we see intended parents being terrified a gestational carrier is going to try to keep the child, it's so unlikely. And in fact, she's more at risk than, than you are really.
0: Well, and you know i and I quote other numbers from a journalist source back in oh i would love love to hear those but uh the journalist quoted an anecdotal study that looked at fifteen thousand surrogacies, and out of fifteen thousand surrogacies, there were eighty nine contested situations between the surrogates and the parents. And out of those, 27 were surrogates that had second thoughts, and 62 were parents that didn't want Yeah, so babies. Yeah,
1: similar, so, right?
0: Yeah. And and the surrogates, when they come into the process that I have experience with, one of their early questions is the direct mirror opposite of the parents. <laughs> They're going,
1: <"Well, laughs> right? What am I, I hear that too. Parents <laughs> don't want <laughs> right. babies? Yeah.
0: And when you look at the statistics, their fear is far more founded than the yes. parents' fear. Absolutely. So, and that may be part and parcel with uh, the more thorough and comprehensive screening of carriers to make sure their intent is there. Um, I'm not sure in our system we are as diligent about assessing the commitment of the parents to complete the process. Um, you know, I had a French couple once that had a child, and they thought the child might be deaf, and they said, There are no support services in France for deaf children. If we take this child home, he'll have a shit life. We don't want the baby. And I just said, wow, it's your baby, your pregnancy. We're going to do that parentage proceeding, and you're going to go home with that baby. And thankfully, they went home. The hearing issue was not major. But uh, as we work in this industry, we have to make sure that when parents waffle We do not allow that. And we say, look, you don't have an option. Surrogacy in, in principle, your pregnancy, this is as if you gave birth. It isn't a surrogate giving birth for your convenience and choice. So now the child is yours. You're going to complete whatever proceedings are necessary to become the parents. And then you deal with the child as you want to deal with it because we can't control that. But it's the intended parent's responsibility to assume that responsibility and then dispatch it within their personal circumstances. Yeah, I,
2: I noticed this was very anti-international uh, surrogacy as well in its bent. Um, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you, Ellen. I actually want to flip backwards really quick to one thing I noticed in there is that they really did not also like for the idea that any parents um, were not the gamete uh they did not give gametes. So basically, you know, in the United States, we see a lot of people who go through embryo donation. And so the parents may not be genetically related to the child as well. And this report was very heavily against that too. Did Did you notice that? And you have thoughts on that too?
0: Yep. The, the genetic link uh, to one of the intended parents, again, That helps them sift out the nationality and citizenship issues because, uh, you know, one of the things they said is a child shouldn't be born stateless and you ought to create uh, citizenship based on the rules of the country, either of residence or birth. And then they go through a whole bunch of exceptions when those things conflict. but most countries only establish citizenship based on genetics so by requiring a genetic parent they're giving a link to avoid statelessness in the event that the parents do receive parentage so they have kind of a subliminal point behind that but i think the better outcome is that states recognize by international comity the parentage established in the country of origin and by origin i mean origin of the birth um, and then if they just accept that parentage as long as the country that established it gave due process and followed whatever principles they have or other alternate principles that i might prefer then the home country should just say you're a parent, it doesn't depend on genetics, it doesn't depend on our rules, and you have citizenship here because a citizen of this country is your legal parent, and that in and of itself is sufficient to grant citizenship.
1: Right. So one thing that I see controversy even here as well is this idea of Whether intended parents are more like adopting parents and should be screened and background checked, or they're more like parents who gave birth themselves, where you're not prevented from having a child even if you have a criminal background or other unsavory things in your background, and they know, you know, there's this false expectation that adults have a right to a child and are very specific about intended parents being background checked. Can I answer what were your thoughts on that and the arguments presented? from the
0: American viewpoint. Well, let's be clear. They don't look at the intended parents as the parents. They look at the surrogate as the parent. Any transfer of a child from one parent to a non-parent in their universe is subject to fitness and home studies. I mean, they, they include in the assessment of intended parents in various provisions from the best interest analysis onward, things like, are they, what's their age and can they parent it to full adulthood? And what is their financial status and what is their mental and physical health? So they're requiring home studies and assessments in the same vein as an adoption. If the best interest standard is triggered. Now, that standard can be supplanted by the pre pregnancy compliance, but that also incorporates the assessment of the parents. So, one of the things that comes very clearly through this report, and I debated with them, and again, this is a key difference between the United States and all of the countries that had input into this on the other side one of the clear statements they make is we want to make it clear that no parent nobody has the right to have a child that right does not exist so if you have a child it isn't by right it's by assessment and qualification if you can't give birth then you better be fit That is so So opposite of what we
2: feel like. I mean, because it's a medical condition and all those other things that we go through in the United States. To you know, the the way we feel so different from that. That's that's fascinating.
0: Well, we have a constitutional line of cases starting with all of the uh, Fourteenth Amendment cases and equal protection that eventually evolved into procreative rights and. Privileges are a constitutionally protected right under the Equal Protection Amendment, and cannot be uh, impinged upon by governmental uh, restriction without um, very serious, substantial cause. So, and that has been extended to surrogacy by at least one unpublished federal opinion in Utah. So, the American system says, "Oh no." We do have a constitutionally protected right to procreate and surrogacy is part of procreation, which means we do have an existing right to have a child that can't be interfered with by the government or restricted. That is as anathema to the European model as the birth mother not being the mother. They say, no, birth mother's a mother. Nobody has the right to a child. If you want a child, you better qualify based on our constitutional principles and our legal structure, we're just on the other side of the tug-of-war rope of that argument. And we're never going to see it the same. And that means we're never going to approach regulation of surrogacy from even the same point or direction. We're just going to be totally polarized.
2: And I mean, that leads to the interesting, so what happens if, you know, this report goes into the into the Hague and, you know, the United States joins the Hague? I mean, we're then in conflict with our own selves, right? So how would you see that potentially playing out if something like that did happen?
0: Well, I can't make, you know.
2: I know, that's a huge like, yeah, hypothetical.
0: <laughs> Let's just say that Numerous people in the ABA and other organizations, from me to Rich Bond, to Bruce Hale, to Stephen Page in Australia, to numerous knowledgeable, weighty personalities in this area, have spoken to the governments, the courts in their countries. Uh, We are uh, drafted an ABA position paper that we gave to the State Department and the people in our State Department that go to the Hague Conference as our representatives and make comments, statements, arguments, and agreements there. And we have had them positioned that they understand that the United States is a unique environment, that surrogacy here isn't like surrogacy everywhere else, that their ability on a national level to regulate surrogacy, which is uniquely a state-by-state authority under our federalism system, they don't even know that Washington, D.C., by participating in the Hague, can make rules that bind all the states because the issue they're binding them on is subject to state autonomy and control. So the United States is standing far back from this. And when the United States doesn't support something, it has less momentum at The Hague. The problem is the people who usually stand with us on most of these things, like Australia, Canada, etc., et Um, they're kind of in the European model on this because of the birth mother thing and because of the no right to procreation thing. So the U.S. doesn't have as many allies at The Hague, but, you know, the U.S. may also not join or become a signatory to whatever The Hague puts out, which means things continue on. So a lot of permutations are possible. The Hague has also recognized that surrogacy should not be dealt with directly as an issue. It should only be dealt with as a subcategory of children's human rights and parentage. So um, they've put it into a smaller compartment, and we don't know how much credibility they'll give to this ISS report. It's out there, Um, but we also drafted a paper uh, after uh, the same uh, leaders in the ABA created an international conference in Cambridge, England two years ago. And we brought all of these people together, including Maud, the rapporteur. Uh, and we brought all of the children of surrogacy and parentage of, parents of surrogacy from around the world and legislators and judges and lawyers and every psychologist and there was a paper that emanated out of that Cambridge conference that counterbalances this uh, to a large degree. So the Hague is going to get a lot of input, this is part of it, doesn't mean it's going to be determinative of it, but it's important because this report, these principles are the final determination of an international group of experts. Granted, coming from a child protection perspective, but still trying to put their arms around the octopus of surrogacy and come up with principles based on a global view. At the very least, we here in the United States have to read this report and realize this is the environment globally within which we are operating. And to the extent we want to preserve the ability to do this in the United States the way we do it, we also have to have deference to how the international community perceives it. And we have to be cautious about doing crazy-ass <laughs> shit. <laughs> like having, Is that like the technical a term? Hired, <laughs> Yeah, that is. That I, mean, is I know you and I have had conversations about that
2: offline and I've like about people doing crazy ass shit. So, yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, you know, you can't have a parent hiring seven surrogates through seven different agencies and not telling everybody what to do. And you can't have parents hiring surrogates and then sending their footman over to take care of the baby and bring it back to them because they're too busy to come and connect with the surrogate or the baby. I mean, there there are things that money can encourage what they call intermediaries to do that they should not be doing from a moral and ethical perspective. And that's where the society for ethical egg donation and surrogacy and creating ethical standards will hopefully ameliorate that and put people on a par but there are always going to be people that violate those standards and i think we do absolutely need to be aware here that we sh- we need to be squeaky clean so that we can hold ourselves up as the ideal for surrogacy and the right way to do it because if you read all these principles ellen and jen as you said, independent legal representation, informed consent, uh, second medical opinion, knowledge of the risks, all of the stuff. So much of it is actually good stuff. Yeah, do.
1: definitely.
0: All of the stuff that we already right. do is in there. So they are in agreement, or we are in agreement with them as to how surrogacy should be done. We're just not in agreement about payment for services. And again, a different national perspective on contracts and enforcement of contracts as they relate to to parentage. We are in a very um, uh, free market, independent individual rights where people can, can contract with each other and they have the ability to contract with each other and contracts are enforceable. And we don't have the trepidation of applying that to reproduction. Well, there are conservative elements here that do. But overall, we've allowed that to take anchor in surrogacy. So also the difference in our constitutional right to contract and have individual liberties is different than in the rest of the world where those things are curtailed. So we're starting to accumulate a, a multiple number of layers from the right to procreate, the, uh, who is the parent irrespective of birth, the strong support of the constitutional right to enter into contracts and enforce them, uh, the lack of, uh, government intervention and intrusion into doctor patient privilege, which is not as, uh, Strong in other European countries, their governments intrude on medical practices all the time. So, as you go through the list of differences in our legal system, our constitutional rights, and the way we just look at ourselves as Americans with very strong individual rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, including procreation we've We've created the boundaries between them and us, and they're pretty clear and they're pretty clear in this document.
1: And can I bring up another big difference of those of those that you listed, and this could be a whole podcast on its own, but I would at least want to touch on it. there is a number of discussion or references in here and that talk about this, for example, human reproductive material in surrogacy should only be used from persons who provide verified and accurate identifying information about themselves and who agree that their identifying information may be transmitted to persons with whom they have a genetic connection. And there is, we see this big right to know that children should have a right to know their genetic connections, but it certainly isn't the way things are working necessarily it's here where we see a lot of, not as the word anonymous, obviously is a misnomer, I think it's Unknown, yeah. but but Donations where there isn't that requirement that identifying information be passed on. Do you mind touching on that giant issue of the differences in point between?
0: (laughs) Oh sure, just just put the elephant right on my back. I I can stagger under that weight. Um, Well, let's start with my argument. Sitting in um, Geneva, Switzerland, when One of the meetings I was at is I said, wait a minute, surrogacy and egg donation, sperm donation, those are two different things. You shouldn't be muddying up waters. You're talking about surrogacy here. And if two people use their genetics, we don't have a donor issue.
2: And and I'm gonna throw I'm gonna let you keep going, but I'm gonna throw this in here is there is actually a line that says the surrogate mother should not be the genetic parent of the child. Oh yeah, in the US
0: traditional we, surrogacy.
2: I was gonna say in the US we have traditional surrogacy. So I, I'm gonna let you go back in there, but I, I, I did want to bring that up too. So this kind of dovetails nicely into that.
0: Yeah. So so my first argument was this language doesn't belong in there at all. I obviously lost that argument. Um My second argument was the United States, ASRM, the um, Cryobank Association, various legislators and other bodies have looked at, evaluated, debated uh, some sort of registry. Agencies can't even get and collect information from donors without losing track of them. Requiring a national registry requires money. There there are pages
2: in this about national registry.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Um, uh, So you can't have uh, required known donors with information stored in perpetuity, as it says in here, without some national registry that the government isn't going to fund simply because of budgetary issues and no other entity has the capacity to fund because it's going to be expensive. And how do you get full compliance and how do you make it mandatory without laws, which means either every state has to have a registry and then you're going to have a disparity among registries or you have to have a national registry. And can you impose that from a federal level on something like egg donation or sperm donation? You probably can, but it's been debated. I, as the chair of the American Bar Association, I sat on the uh, committee that met once a year in Washington, D.C. That included the FDA, the CDC, Resolve, uh, at that time the AFA, all of the governmental entities that had anything to do with reproductive material, and. This whole concept just wasn't workable. So, again, this is a disparity between the United States and the rest of the world. Other governments believe that knowing your genetic origins is mandatory, and other international bodies, like the UK and others, uh, Canada, are making known donors the requirement. And again, remember, it's easier for those countries to do it because the UK is a country. It isn't 50 states. Uh, the United States is 50 states, and there's an interaction between the federal government and state government that draws some lines about authority, and we don't always know on what side of the line it falls and what the federal government combines states to do or not. So again, there's a tug-of-war between the states and the federal government. But in most countries, They want known donors only because they think genetic history is mandatory. The United States has come out of an anonymous, still provides many anonymous donors. Um, The ultimate issue on that is that some of the international countries like the Netherlands that is considering new legislation to regulate surrogacy They're going to put little things in there. I've heard this in a number of countries that they're going to put a provision that says, if you go to another country and come back, we'll give you parentage, but only if your donor is known. So they're going to make surrogacy contingent on the use of known donors that's going to put the onus on us to provide known donors or these people aren't going to be able to become parents when but
1: they it home. also seems like an issue when we're talking about the right of the children, the right of the child to be protected and have this relationship with their parents, it seems to put the children in danger.
0: You mean by providing the information or not providing?
1: By saying we won't recognize that you are a parent of the child because he's an anonymous oh. donor.
0: Well, you know that's that's again another provision of this says if you if you dig down into the granular wording, um, cooperation between countries in states where surrogacy is permitted, they should not encourage the travel of parents from states where it's not permitted to go there. In other words, they should discourage people from going there. The interesting thing is they don't say prohibit. They just say you shouldn't facilitate it. Um, And there are provisions in here that say if you are in the United States, you should not be advertising in Italy, Germany, France on social media any other platform. Uh they don't want this the countries that do it to foster violation of the policies in the countries that don't by tempting their parents to go elsewhere. They fall short of prohibiting it, and all they require is that at least one of the parents can bring the child home to their home country under the existing laws, and if they can, they just kind of turn a blind eye. But you know, you know, Ellen, I as an agency, I have parents from all over the world and who is coming to me to become parents through surrogacy from countries where it's completely illegal judges attorneys police chiefs ivf physicians all the people that should be enforcing the laws are so right. right
2: so another thing i found really fascinating was it talked about that so speaking of agency owners and things like that is it talks about like those who facilitate, so that would be agencies, right, in the United States is our common term for it, that, that their costs shouldn't be excessive. But who determines excessive, which I think is fascinating. And again, it, it could just be that it's from the international versus the U.S. because we do have such a free market system as what, what determines excessive versus not.
0: Yeah. Well, again, they're very anathema to intermediaries. And this comes from places like India where intermediaries are using poor women that are illiterate, that get contracts in English without attorneys, that they put up in dormitories. And when they get paid, the clinic or the intermediary takes 40 percent of the fee that's ostensibly routed to the carrier and they see intermediaries in other places doing horrible things. And, and let's be clear. We can look at this report from the U.S. perspective and say with our noses in the air, but we're doing it right and it's working. And by and large, we don't have too many people doing crazy-ass shit. But in other places, crazy-ass shit's the norm. India, Cambodia, other developing country destinations have very real human rights violations ingrained in the surrogacy process where women are financially coerced, are kept in crowded dormitories, are disadvantaged by people taking cuts of their money and not educating them and not giving them uh, autonomy. And the momentum toward regulating this isn't coming from what we're doing here. It's coming from what they're seeing everywhere else. And they're really trying to regulate two very different kinds of surrogacies, one that very much needs to be regulated and one that not so much. And when they try to regulate us, they run into our constitutional, legal, and societal differences that make us look at it from a different side of the Rubik's Cube and say, no, I do have the right to a child. I can enter into a contract and pay for services. And if they breach that, I can get that money back because that's the way our system works. And you're not going to change that even as to reproduction. So I'm not sure we're going to have common ground, but this report could have gone a lot worse, a lot more negative on intermediaries, a lot more negative about uh, establishing parentage and cooperation between countries. It, it's not good in some of its fundamental skeletal issues of right to procreation, ability to pay without uh, revocation and things like that, but it could have been worse. And I like your positive
1: point.
2: <laughs> I, it does have a lot of positives in it. So, I mean, it's just that those negatives, you you read them and they get a little scary <laughs> or a lot scary. Um, Thank you, Steve, so much. We appreciate your perspective on this. And I I could probably sit and talk to you about this all day. So we have to at least uh, respect that our listeners are like, whoa, we need time to go back and read this and digest it. I would encourage people to listen to this, go back, read the report, and then actually listen to it again. So because it takes a couple times to really digest all of this stuff
0: for anybody who's interested yeah there's a lot of if this happens do this and then if this happens that applies and you have to follow the rabbit through the thicket before you finally figure out that they have a fail safe in there that isn't as bad as you might think on a superficial face Mm -hmm.
1: well steve thank you so much we are so grateful for you coming on and so grateful for the voice you provide internationally that our system our beliefs can be be heard in these conversations
0: well, we'll just keep the conversation going, Ellen. And uh, in the meantime, we all have to do things the best, most compassionate, ethical, moral way we do them here and hold ourselves to a high standard. So, You're that here. is my to Absolutely. Our
1: Thank you, Steve Snyder. We are always incredibly appreciative for you sharing all of your expertise and your experience and your brilliant thoughts on, on the area. And for those who really enjoyed this podcast, um, note that this is our second time that we've been so fortunate to be on. So you can go back and listen to that episode, which is also um, truly fascinating and great. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Steve. Yes, absolutely. And I
2: mean, speaking of thank yous, well, actually, first, I, I want to always encourage people to leave us their, your little iTunes, uh, your iTunes thoughts and musings. Uh, we always appreciate them. Uh, we also appreciate hearing from people. If you want to give us a call at 303-997-1903, or if you want to leave us a message via our website uh, and go peruse our happy, fun sperm merchandise, we we do love that. Um, but more than anything, as Ellen was saying, thank you to everybody involved. Thank you to Amanda on our team. Thank you to Tyler. And of course, thank you to Chris at Worker Bird Studios, who does a phenomenal job of editing our dogs, as you might have heard last week, um, or sometimes he is not able to edit out our dogs. And that, that's okay. It just happens. This is life in COVID times. Um, but thank you to all of you who listen. We really do appreciate you being along with us.